football is back, and Domino's Hawaii couldn't be more excited. Our community has been through a lot this year, and so to show our appreciation for all your efforts and sacrifice, we'd like to do our part in helping you enjoy the games by offering large specialty pizzas for $15.99 and our new buffalo wings for $5.99. Just log on to the Domino's Hawaii website or app, and remember, while you watch your favorite team, you can be assured that our team continues to make your health and safety a top priority. What's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? All right, time to warm things up, our little pregame topic. And because there are so many sports going on now, we actually have some tangible sports to discuss, including the best Hawaii sports performance of the last week. And no, not talking about the University of Hawaii or even local prep sports, but talking about athletes who originate from Hawaii, including Waimanalo's Tyson Nam, who happens to be the guest on this episode of the podcast. We'll get to that momentarily. Knocking out Jerome Rivera in the second round of a bantamweight bout on UFC Fight Night this past weekend, his second straight KO victory. You also have Mililani's Dylan Gabriel throwing for 417 yards and four TDs in 14th-ranked UCF's 49-21 season open victory over Georgia Tech. You have St. Louis alum Jordan Botello, the highly hyped recruit out of the islands, scored his first career touchdown at the collegiate level on a one-yard recovery off a blocked punt and also hammered the punter in the end zone on another special team's play while playing for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish in their 52-0 win over South Florida. So which was the best Hawaii sports performance of this last week? Was it one of those or was it maybe even something outside of one of those? I thought Dylan Gabriel was amazing. I, I thought he was terrific in that game. It's so funny. They go from Mackenzie Milton, right? A, a little bit of a, a, a gap. And then Dylan Gabriel, he's picking up right where uh, the Middleani Trojan connection pipeline has left off. He was terrific. I also got to give a, a shout out to the two D linemen playing in the NFL. And one in Tyson Alualu, who recorded a, a sack against the Broncos yesterday on Sunday. And then there was DeForest Buckner, whose defense kind of bounced back after the week one loss against Jacksonville. We've had Tyson, uh, we've had DeForest on the show. He had three tackles yesterday, one and a half sacks. And did you see the move that he put on that right guard for Minnesota where he went like Reggie White hump move <laughs> and basically decleated, just decleated the right guard for the Minnesota Vikings and put him on his backside on a straight bull rush to the quarterback from, from the interior. I mean, it was stuff you see like in high school games where some overmatched defensive lineman is embarrassing some poor kid. Like, he did that to a starting right guard in the NFL. That was impressive. Yeah, no, that was very impressive. Just DeForest doing DeForest things, and it really looks like he has become acclimated to that scheme and his teammates, and he was showing some emotion out there. And, you know, the offense for the Colts hasn't necessarily always been too sharp with Phillip Rivers at the helm. I think some of his uh, former arm strength doesn't appear to quite be there, but on the defensive side, the Colts look like they are, are something to be reckoned with. And I think DeForest is obviously a big focal point of that. Uh, yeah, you know what? Maybe for the sake of hyping up the guest here today, I'm going to go with Tyson Nam, though, because he's old school, man. Started his mixed martial arts career in 2006 as part of the Icon Sport events that were being held at the Blaisdell. I had the privilege of announcing some of his first career fights. Uh, and to see him now, all these years later, at 36 years of age, in the UFC octagon, and he's just knocking fools out. <laughs> like He is popping dudes with that devastating right fist. 
uh, it is uh, it is a sight to see and, and something to behold. So I'm going to go with Tyson Nam for this one because that will segue into the official welcoming to this episode of the podcast. That's right. Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. And we have Tyson Nam joining us fresh off of that second round TKO victory over Jerome Rivera. Second straight KO win for him. He's going to turn 37 next month and is making a strong surge in his UFC career. Now 20-11-1 overall as a mixed martial artist. 2-2 two and two in the UFC. You know, he didn't make his UFC debut until 35 years old. This was last September incredible journey for him. He looks as good as he ever has at nearly 37 years old. That right hand is nasty. Uh, and if he keeps looking like this, they're going to have no choice but to give him some more high-profile fights. Officially after that last fight, calling out publicly Joseph Benavidez. I'm not sure if they're going to grant him that fight, but Benavidez, who is also 36 years of age, interestingly enough, uh, he's one of the top-rated flyweights out there. So uh, I think that would be a pretty good one if they do give that opportunity to Tyson Nam. But to see him doing what he's doing, seemingly getting better at this stage of his career, uh, awesome to see. We'll uh, talk to him in just a little bit. But let's get to our game time. And are you ready for some Mountain West football? Well, League ADs are scheduled to meet today at the time of this recording to attempt to prepare a final proposal to present to the league's board of directors this week regarding a fall football season schedule. Reports speculate that such a schedule would start on October 24th. So similar to the announced Big Ten schedule, whether or not the fiscal aspect of this suits the University of Hawaii's involvement is another question entirely. How do you view the possibilities of Mountain West football and how complicated and difficult do you think it is from the perspective of the University of Hawaii to be involved? Exponentially more hard for the University of Hawaii, right? It is infinitely more difficult because of the travel because of the logistics there because of the fact that you you know the quarantine still is lifted even though it's you know it's supposed to be modified come October 15th that's what nine days before a potential season could begin I mean that's only a month from now that's a lot of planning I think the pressure will mount no doubt about it especially if the Pac-12 moves and decides to play like the Big Ten has already done that would only leave the Mountain West and the MAC as the two conferences not playing. Uh, and so the pressure would mount if 80% of the schools are out there playing, you know, and, and so for the University of Hawaii in particular, what's the decision going to look like, right? What, what considerations have to be made for them to be a viable option for the conference as well, right? Are, are schools going to be willing to sign off on flying out here to play games? Is it going to necessitate the University of Hawaii f- playing the bulk of their schedule on the mainland, say setting up shop or playing multiple road games in a row, three, four weeks, something like that, where you just set up camp at a neutral site or something. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the issue, right? The, the geography of Hawaii in this instance works as a disadvantage in many ways, right? Because, yeah, it's going to be expensive because likely Hawaii will have to, and this goes for basketball, right? The NCAA announcing this past week the framework and the, and the time schedule for when the start of college basketball would be, which is the day before Thanksgiving. And so right now, the University of Hawaii men's and women's programs, they're scrambling to put together a schedule, and it's likely going to have a disproportionate amount of road games just because of the logistical aspect of playing single or even you know doubling up games in Hawaii it probably makes more sense for the basketball program to go play clusters of games on the continent 
in California. And I think the same might go for football. And I, I understand it's a different dynamic. You only play one game each week. And so maybe that makes it a little more viable for teams to come here. But you also have the, the travel uh, restrictions and the quarantine restrictions, which are supposed to loosen in mid-October, but who knows exactly what that's going to look like. Uh, and so I, I, it, from a decision-making and strategic planning standpoint, I think it's just difficult to be able to predict exactly the scenario that Hawaii is going to be associated with. And so if they do have to play an innumerable amount of games on the road and they do maybe consider the idea of, hey, why don't we you know, house ourselves in certain areas on the mainland, that's still going to be very expensive. Uh, and while educationally, uh, because of the distance learning that's taking place, uh, it's not as though the student athletes are going to be missing out on a lot of school time, which is a positive, but the, the fiscal aspect of this, I think, is the big challenge for Hawaii individually. Uh, that was all made possible basically because of the emergence of the daily rapid response COVID testing, right? The testing was a lot more complicated, a lot more expensive when the Mountain West and the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the MAC originally made the announcement that they were postponing fall sports. It just wasn't feasible. It wasn't realistic from a cost standpoint uh, and even in terms of just the overall monitoring. But the tests have gotten better. better. They've gotten more efficient, uh, financially so as well. Uh, and so I think that at least introduces the possibility of having the discussion. And we'll see where it goes from here. But uh, yeah, we're all holding out hope that we're going to see some form of Mountain West football, some form of University of Hawaii football. And uh, how bad would the optics be, by the way, if the Mountain West returns to football before the Pac-12 conference does. We mentioned basketball, so we switch over to a piece of news that we saw coming, but still kind of stings a little bit for those of us who live on the island of Maui and really for all Hawaii Hoops fans. But the Maui Jim Maui Invitational is moving to the mainland. Tournament officials made it official, confirming the tournament would be held at the Harris Cherokee Center in Asheville, North Carolina this year due to the pandemic. It'll run from November 30th to December 2nd. Still expected to feature a field that includes Alabama, Indiana, North Carolina, Stanford, Texas, Davidson, Providence, and UNLV. This was one of those years in the rotation where Chaminade wasn't to be part of the field. Maui Mayor Michael Victorino said that officials told him that this move would only apply to this year's event. But still, uh, how much of a bummer is this? It's kind of like seeing your, uh, your, your significant other kind of palling around with somebody else temporarily. Yeah, they, they asked, uh, they said they needed a little bit of a break, right? A little, putting the relationship on a break here. It, it's a bummer. We we had the feeling that this was pretty inevitable. And it, it makes a lot of sense from my understanding. Kemper Lesnick, the, the owner of the tournament, had a previous, you know, relationship to, to kind of keep that parallel going. But they've, they've done business in Asheville. So they, they have an existing relationship with the sports commission there. So it made sense uh, geographically. Uh, it's a lot closer for North Carolina, for Davidson, for Providence, for Indiana, uh, even Alabama and Texas coming up. Like it, it makes sense with everything going on right now. And and um, my understanding is that they're, they're still going to make that arena as Maui as possible. Like they're still going to promote Maui. They're still going to have signage. And so it'll be weird, no doubt about it. But <laughs> they're still trying to keep the Maui ties and brand it as Maui and Hawaii as possible. Uh, and as the mayor has pointed out that, uh, you know, he was told that this is only for this year. So that is an, in itself is comforting knowing that, hey, they they promised to come back at the very least. Right. Yeah, I, I, I shudder to think about how they are still going to convey the Maui vibe like it'll be conveying the Hawaii vibe as much as the ABC store does. 
All right, speaking of hoops, uh, talk about raising an eyebrow, a single eyebrow. Anthony Davis, one of the most famous unibrows on the planet, added to his reputation by hitting a buzzer-beating game-winner against the Nuggets in Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals. It's the first game-winning shot when trailing in a playoff game for the Lakers since Kobe Bryant did it in 2006. The Lakers were wearing the Mamba-themed black uniforms that they apparently currently are still unbeaten in, and you could see AD immediately yelling towards the Laker bench, Kobe, after hitting the shot. How potentially all-time big was that shot by AD? If they win the title, which at this point they should, like they're they're the best team left in that tournament, all-time, like among the best Laker shots because of the year, because of the moment, because of the jerseys, the fact that there's Gigi's number two on the on the chest, right, of those jerseys, the fact that Anthony Davis, I think, is further ingratiating himself as a Laker, right? Uh, even LeBron James. There are a lot of people apprehensive, you know, hey, no, 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 no. We're Kobe guys. We're not LeBron guys, you know, and and so as LeBron continues to win, as LeBron continues to march toward what could be another championship the first in LA as he is sort of taking on the mantle of making sure that Kobe's memory is still front and center. The fact that his, his daughter is still front and center, like all of that, like right. The, the Laker lore and everything, uh, this could be huge. Absolutely huge. I mean, it was almost one, one, and I still wouldn't have been too worried. They've won all, they've lost a game in each of the first two series, but I mean, that's iconic. That, that was his playoff moment, right? I mean, you, you, the great players have those playoff moments, and, and that was his. And, and to be frank, I think he kind of bailed LeBron out in that game. LeBron, <laughs> I swear, I was watching that game. I, I was thinking uh, the guy was fantastic in the first half. And in the second half, I was like, wait, is LeBron like shaving points or something? Like what is going on over here? Uh, but the Lakers were bailed out by AD. And it's spooky, some of the stuff that is going on around the Lakers, the coincidences that run parallel with Kobe and some of what he did, right? Uh, They were talking about the last time the Lakers and the Nuggets met up in the playoffs, one of the years that Kobe won the title and he won the title in Orlando going up against the Magic and here they are in Orlando going up against the Nuggets. And it's like just history repeating itself in a lot of very eerie, uncanny ways. A huge shot. It'll go down in Laker lore and legend like Robert Ory's shot, which was also in the Western Conference Finals, the one that came in 2002 against the Sacramento Kings. And it also had the what are you doing or thinking aspect of it, whereas Mason Plumlee, for whatever reason, decides not to follow AD around the three-point arc instead, expecting LeBron to set a screen seven feet away that wasn't even being set. It was kind of like when Vlade Divac taps it out straight to Robert Ori, who's just hanging out by the three-point line. It's like, grab the ball, Vlade. You look at Mason Plumlee, it's like, follow AD, Mason. Like, what are you doing? Uh, So, yeah, for all of those reasons, uh, it'll be a shot that will be talked about for many, many years, especially if the Lakers pull this Mm -hmm. off. And how magnificent would that be in a year where everyone is mourning the loss of Kobe Bryant for the Lakers to honor his memory by somehow claiming the title. It would be poetic, but there's a lot of work to be done for sure because the Denver Nuggets, we know, uh, don't go away easily. But there also remains the possibility of sort of the story within the story from the Hawaii basketball perspective, the possibility of a coaching matchup of UH Hoops legends in the NBA Finals. You have Phil Handy as an assistant for the Lakers. You have Anthony A.C. Carter on the Heat staff. So we talk about amazing things. How amazing would that be? Uh, if it's if it's Heat Lakers, we don't even have to play the series. Let's just have Phil and AC play a little game of one on one. 
first to seven winners call your own fouls and uh winner gets the title get the ring i like that yeah who would you have in that particular matchup oh i don't know <laughs> i don't know those two are also just tough dudes yeah like tough dudes who aren't gonna back down you know a little get get a little physical maybe you know in that matchup i don't know i don't I, I mean ac it. had the better pro career so that's but if you're telling me I'm going to pick against Phil Handy in anything. Yeah, yeah. What is this going to be, like the seventh straight NBA Finals if the Lakers make it that Phil Handy's been a part of? Like the guy, just everything he touches <laughs> seems to turn to gold. So, yeah, that would be phenomenal. I like the, the Hawaii one-on-one matchup for the championship. All right, we switch over to the gridiron. Week two in the NFL, and the main storyline from week two was injuries. Some of the biggest injuries included torn ACLs for Nick Bosa and Saquon Barkley ankle sprains for Christian McCaffrey. Drew Locke had a sprain as well. A host of other injuries, many of whom are key 49ers. How much do you suspect these injuries being related to a lack of a traditional training camp and or preseason this very strange year in the NFL? It has to be part of it, right? And I don't know how much. It's it's so hard to know. In college, they don't they don't play a preseason and, and they get right into it and they, they go ahead and play. You know, the NFL had a decent amount of ramp-up time. They could go through camp and whatnot. It was different for sure. Um, a lot of these guys play minimally in the preseason, especially quarterbacks. Um, there is something, I think, to be said, especially for a running back, right? You go out, you play a quarter, kind of get your body used to the blows, if you will, in the same way a fighter's going to spar before they get into the, the ring or the cage and, and get their body kind of reacclimated to taking some punishment. There, there's that, I think. And, and there's some that I'm sure are just happenstance. Like, you know, whether, you know, the Saquon Barkley knee injury it barely gets hit, goes down, hard to say, right? Um, I, I think it'd be naive to think that there isn't a little bit of a causation, but I, I think it, it's so hard to know, right? It's so hard to know medically really how much that factored in. These guys made it through week one, you know, it, I, I, it's just at the end of the day, really disheartening because so many of these dudes are studs and stars and and to think that some of them you know like a Saquon are, are just done for the year. To put yourself out on the NFL field with the kind of size and speed uh, and just power that you're dealing with because that game man is just getting faster and faster and thus more and more dangerous and if you don't have the appropriate preparation I think uh, for your body to be able to adjust to that danger and that hazard that you're basically basically exposing yourself to, bad things can happen. Uh, as far as the action on the field, though, uh, wild finishes in Dallas and Seattle. The Cowboys came back to win against the Falcons thanks to the craziest onside kick recovery maybe you've ever seen. Uh, you also had the Seahawks and Patriots. That came down to a play on the one-yard line. Yet again, let's talk about that uh, onside kick. The Falcons didn't seem to know the rules and decided not to fall on top of the ball until it passed 10 yards. But by then it was too late and the Cowboys recovered. How crazy was that? And, and do you give any credence one way or another to uh, how much that game impacts either those teams, the Falcons or the Cowboys? It was deja vu all over again, right? The, the Falcons blew a massive lead. Seattle and New England comes down to the, to the goal line at the end of a game. Yeah, the, the Falcons looked like a third baseman trying to see if the ball was going to roll foul as it rolls up the, the third baseline, uh, you know, on a bunt attempt or something. Just jump on the ball. It's just waiting there. They, they, they were around a campfire. And they could touch it early. Just fall on top of it. To blow that lead was brutal for the Falcons there late. I, the Cowboys, I think, again, we overhyped them 
and, and we just generally speaking as the media, uh, again, that NFC East looks atrocious as a division once again. So they'll probably win it at nine and seven or 10 and six or something. Uh, but I, I am not including them amongst the upper echelon there in the NFC. But just jump on the football, Atlanta. Come on. Yeah, that was weird. Like, it was so weird that even I had to think, like, wait, do I not know the rules? So I, I was, like, texting friends, like, wait, uh, the receiving team can grab the ball. They don't have to wait for it to go 10 yards, right? Which actually, when you think about it, might be an interesting rule to make those onside kicks uh, a little bit more <laughs> exciting. But, you know, gave the Cowboys an opportunity to recover, and they end up winning that game. And uh, next-gen stats, I think, had them as a 2% chance at one point in that game to win, and they end up winning. And then when you talk about the Cowboys, right, you know, they won. Maybe it's a season-saving victory, but they don't look a lot different under this new regime than they did in recent years, right? I mean, that, that offense is still very hot and cold, very hit and miss. Uh, the defense is dealing with some injuries, to be honest, but at the same time, you know, it's not – they don't seem like they're dominant in any one fashion or one phase in Seattle, where it came down to the one-yard line play between the Seahawks and the Patriots again, they ran that play several times with success earlier in that game. Uh, you have called some plays and have coordinated offenses at the high school level, and you know we're not going to pretend to know more about football than these guys at the NFL level, but uh, were you surprised at that call? And which team did we learn more about, you think, in that Seahawks-Patriots game? Ooh, that's a that's a really good question. The call I understood, they had been really successful on those goal-to-goal situations, even against the Seahawks in this game. Uh, and so I understood it. Maybe you give them an, uh, an option as well, to uh, a little throw option, maybe more of a perimeter-type run where he's got the option to throw or keep, perhaps. Uh, sometimes we fault teams for overthinking it, right, and doing something like that. Hey, like the Seahawks in the Super Bowl when they <laughs> threw the football. So it's one of those, you know, and, and, and I think in a week two game where you're already 1-0, and okay, we'll see. Hey, maybe we can get a yard here. The stakes are much lower, right, than, say, in a playoff game or a must-win to keep your season alive type situation. I don't know if we found out anything new about those two teams, but I think when you juxtapose it across the rest of their divisions, across the rest of their conferences, they're really good. I think the Seahawks are the best team in the NFC. And I think the Patriots are going to win the AFC East. I think they're the best team in the East. The the Bills look really good. They looked really good again. They also gave up a fair amount of points against Miami yesterday. But I I think the Patriots are solid. I think they're really solid in what they're doing. They're going to be adaptable. They're throwing all kinds of different looks. They're they're, they're getting imaginative on both sides of the football. And if you're telling me I get to pick Belichick or the rest of those teams in that division with the Cam Newton who's playing it, maybe that's what we found out most, I think, what we learned most. Cam Newton looks great. He looks just fine. He looks like that team is going to be really solid. I would say that's the biggest takeaway, right? We, we know Russell Wilson is phenomenal. Something I didn't realize that they brought up on the broadcast for Sunday Night Football was the fact that he's never received an MVP vote. That's mind-boggling to a me. A vote? He, yeah, not even a vote. Unbelievable. That's crazy. So, um, and you'd imagine he's the front runner after two weeks, even though it's very early in the season for most people. Uh, I agree with you about the Patriots. I think that's what we learned the most was Cam Newton. He is healthy. Like, that's what the Patriots got. That was the question, right? Like, what kind of Cam Newton did the Patriots get? Did they get a Cam Newton that resembles when he was at the height of his career and he was winning an MVP and he was going to the Super Bowl uh, where he had the arm strength, he had the throwing ability? If anything, he was throwing the ball as well as we've ever seen him from an accuracy standpoint. Obviously, the the protection helped or maybe the lack of a Seahawks pass rush, which is another something we learned maybe in that game. But Cam Newton looked phenomenal. And I think at the end of the day, once again, the rest of the NFL looking dumb 
by comparison to Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick outsmarting the rest of the NFL. And this one wasn't necessarily a mastermind move by Bill. It was more the rest of the NFL perhaps overthinking or making presumptions about Cam Newton because they passed. There were a whole lot of other much worse quarterbacks who were making much more money because teams were more willing to sign them than they were to sign Cam Newton. And guess who was just waiting until all of that attrition, you know, all of the smoke and dust sort of uh, cleared away? Bill Belichick, who was able to then welcome this version of Cam Newton into that program. Uh, And so I agree with you. You know, the Bills, they play, what, the Jets and the Dolphins in the first two weeks? We still Mm -hmm. don't know much about them and and, and how legitimately good they are. I think the Patriots, even in a loss, they prove they're damn good. And Cam Newton is really, really good once again. All right, time to get to our Domino's Hawaii main topping for the episode. It is our interview with Tyson Nam coming off his second straight TKO victory. He is soon to be 37 years of age, and uh, let's run that interview with Tyson Nam. Hey, what's up, Tyson? Good to talk with you, man. It's uh, been a while, and I know that you've been busy just uh, knocking dudes out here a lot recently. So congratulations on the win, and, and what, back home in Hawaii, huh? Right back home. I mean, we, we spent about two weeks out there in Vegas, about a, a week too long. So, uh, yeah, just just that Vegas uh, vibe, it kind of wears on top of you mentally and physically. So we're back here in Hawaii. They Somehow they we had a six-hour delay in L.A., and they only gave us $20 to go buy some food with, which you can only buy a bottle of water with at the airport. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know if the $20 will, like, it's probably the small bottle of water, not even, like, the big one, right? Small Fiji. Small Fiji. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, was that an impressive performance. Again, second straight KO victory. It, it seems as though you have found a little something here as of late. What, what, have, you, what have you found here? Um, I think it really comes from me just uh, training full-time right uh, as of recent. Ever since uh, June, I've been training full time for uh, for that fight and this fight. Um, yeah, before, uh, ever since I started, I always had a I had a job, and then the pandemic hit, so all I could actually do was just train. Somehow, that that might actually be the winning recipe for me is just train all day every day. Oh, that's interesting. So you hear a lot of athletes who have talked about the pandemic kind of providing another obstacle or almost getting in the way of their routine for you it got in a way in a good way yeah it was it was practically a blessing because even when I got into the UFC um I was like you know I got into the AFC I'm not I'm never gonna change what I do on a day-to-day basis but uh yeah that pandemic hit and and so I only was able to train and quarantine and literally like my body felt a lot more rested, you know, going into like the second or the third workout of the day that I've uh, never had that energy, you know, like for like evening practice or anything of that sort, just because I, I work out in the morning, then I go straight to the gym to train clients. And I, right after that, then I hit straight to the, to the other gym to get punched in the face. And I already going into that second practice. I mean, you, you're at a gym all day and, and you're just like mentally and just physically kind of drained. So, uh, uh, I guess the pandemic worked uh, well for me. <laughs> it looks like it. Yeah, can't argue with the results of the last two fights, that's for sure. Now, you've always packed a punch. You've always had pop. There's no denying that. Uh, but it looks like, I mean, you're bringing some major heat 
uh, once again these days? Uh, is that just from the training or is that, I mean, just maybe your ability to at this stage of your career be even more precise with it? Where, where's some of that, that power coming from? And, you know, when I uh, first started uh, mixed martial arts, I, um, I started actually pretty late, almost while I was turning uh, 21. And, you know, they, they always say that to become a master at something, I mean, it takes a good a decade, 10,000 rep rule or 10 years to actually uh, to master something. So I think I'm finally uh, making my way around to what exactly um, I need to do. I mean, I, I've always had a right hand. I just, I just never really knew how to, I guess, say, just set it up or you know, when, when should I throw it, but. I think I, I think I got the, I think I got the timing down right. Uh, now, now I do. Yeah, I mean, it looked like in in well, both fights, the first, the, the fight two fights ago was uh, pretty brief. So this one, we had a little more time to kind of see uh, the strategy playing out, and it really did. It looked mm -hmm. like you were just kind of sitting on it, waiting to get within range, and and you know, looking to counter strike. And uh, so it, it's become, it looks like it's become your key strategy is just let me uh let me unleash this thing on somebody i mean that is that is the primary weapon huh yeah you know like it's a numbers game the more times i throw it i guess uh my uh the the chances and my ratios of you hitting with, uh, getting hit with it is gonna go up so man i was just swinging that thing all day on top of uh on top of saturday and just waiting for one to land i mean he was a he was a really tall lengthy uh fighter i mean a huge uh difference from my previous I would say there was about a difference in about six or seven inches, and even just a a length a, a length discrepancy um, by about almost like nine or eight or nine inches. So it, I had to I had to get that timing down. I I think I finally was uh, getting it at the end of the first round, and when the second round came, I made a few adjustments of just sliding my body over to the to the left, and it lined up that right hand perfectly. Yeah, how, how much Tyson does, does that sort of factor in uh, the opponent, right? Because I mean, basically on short notice, the, this latest fight, uh, you know, you're talking about Adeshev, you know, a couple of months ago, and, and he comes in a little overweight. Like, how much of uh, this success has come on getting to know the opponent, a game plan, or is it just going in there and really focusing on yourself? Yeah, well, we, yeah, so we literally had about a week. Well, I was, I was up in Vegas literally making weight and Schnell had to pull out due to uh, medical conditions. So they, they, they found somebody right away. Um, he, he was, uh, Jerome was coming off of a win from the Contender Series. So um, I had to, we, we looked at a couple of videos. Um, our, uh, my team that I had up there with me, we put together a, a game plan was uh, repetitioning a lot of uh uh, tendencies that my opponent was going to do and how I was going to get inside to, to unleash that right hand on top of them. So we, we, we came in as prepared as possible. I mean, you always want a few weeks, but they gave us seven days and we ran with it. And how much of just finishing fights before it gets to the, to the scorecards is, is part of that game plan? I, I never feel good whenever it goes the distance just because I've, I've always fought in someone else's home country, hometown, and I feel about, if I can count at least six decision losses, I feel was a little bit of a juice call for the hometown person. So um, I, I never feel good when that, uh, that, that, that final bell rings. So I'm always, uh, well, definitely 
definitely always wanting to finish fights. Uh, that, that, that's the only way that I feel I win. And I imagine that when you do, like that, that feeling never gets old, right? The ability to, to score that TKO or the ability to finish a fight early as you have. Uh, I imagine that that's, that's, the, that's the sweet spot of the sport in many ways, right? It is the highest of highs, like uh, especially in a combative sport. I mean, it, there, there's no feeling that you can actually describe like that, which is why, um, you know, like a lot of fighters, they'll retire and there's, they're always wanting to come back because there's nothing that, that replicates that, um, that type of uh, adrenaline rush that you get when you, you know, knock somebody. I mean, they literally win, but, you know, when you knock somebody out, I mean, Coming, coming from Hawaii, and that, that's all we want to do out on the street when, whenever we're growing up. Man, it's, it's such a great feeling. And, and uh, just, to, you know, we, we keep putting together victories like this. You know, a lot of Hawaii boys are getting their shot. You know, exciting shows for the fans, the audience, and just uh, sports fans in general. Well, we're talking with Tyson Nam. You've been putting on entertaining fights from the get-go, but you started a while ago. I mean, what, you're 36 years of age, and, and I recall – um, calling some of your early career fights at the Blaisdell in Icon in Elite XC, like it's it's not often that you see fighters at this stage of their careers making the kind of moves as far as as some of these victories and and making kind of the moves up the rankings that you are making. So it's been a minute. How how do you sort of process all of that? And it's almost like a a scary thought because yeah, I had my first mixed martial arts fight in two thousand and six. So According to my calculations, that's about 14-ish years. And, I mean, you know, I actually feel myself actually still getting better. I'm learning more. I'm getting, you know, they, they say that, you know, in your early to mid-30s and when you hit your man strength. So I just feel so much stronger. Growing up, I, I was always more of a, a team sport type of a player. I, I didn't, you know, wrestle growing up. So uh, I know a lot of my friends that were wrestlers, they always have these uh, – a lot of injuries, you know, knees, shoulders, back, neck, which I didn't necessarily have to uh, put myself through. So I feel like my body's even fresher than some of these uh, mid-20-year-olds that, you know, have wrestled since, you know, they started walking. Um, but, I mean, it, it's a blessing just because, you know, I'm, I'm at this age. I'm in a big show. And, and like I said, I, I, I'm still getting better. So right when I feel like I should be going down, like, like the normal curve, but I'm still going up. So I guess I still keep doing it. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, you know, we mentioned just kind of how long it has taken for you to get to this point and, and enjoying it now. Uh, was the UFC always the goal? I mean, you fought in so many different promotions in so many places really around the world uh, to get to this point and, and, and cracking through to the UFC. What was it? I, I believe a year ago today, as we record this on the 21st of September, uh, was was that yeah. always the goal? Did you envision always sort of getting there as, as you fought in places like Moscow and New Zealand and Mexico and Brazil and, and all these different places? Yeah, you know, uh, when, when I first was uh, watched the UFC, it, it was kind of like something like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, I'll never be able to do that. I'm just some small boy in Hawaii. Um, but as uh, times went on and, you know, I was pretty good at it and you know, traveling the world to Brazil. I mean, especially in 2012 when I knocked out the uh, uh, Bellator bantamweight champion at the time, Eduardo Dantes. I was supposed to have been picked up by the UFC back then, and I swear they uh, said that my first fight was going to be against Uriah Faber. Um, but 
you know, good old, uh, well, not Bellator, but just Bjorn Rebney in general kind of squashed my dreams back then. Talking with Tyson Nam. Yeah, it, you had the contract issues with, with Bellator there, and that kind of steered you, as you were alluding to, into some different directions that, that maybe you weren't intending to go. And so was there any time along that path or, or along that timeline where you started to feel discouraged, where you were wondering, like, gosh, you know, UFC obviously is the big brand, and, and you had a desire to, to fight under that banner. Was there uh, ever a stretch over the course of that time where you kind of felt like, I don't know if that's going to happen? Every single day since 2012, that first contract dispute with Bellator, then it was kind of a matching rights thing between Bellator, the WSOF, and the UFC. But, and, you know, I've, I've been through so many, like, ups and downs of, like, uh, you know, consecutive losses in a row, probably like three or four times in my career. And I was just thinking, yeah, I think that I, I might never ever uh, fight in the UFC uh, or the, uh, or the, the U S fans to see what I do uh, internationally overseas ever. I guess, uh, you know, good things happen to those who wait even uh, 14 years later. <laughs> That's right. Well, you've referred to yourself. It's it's kind of like wine, right? It, it gets better with age, and it, it kind of is taking on the appearance here. What's next for you? What what where are you hoping this goes now? Well, I uh, called out Joseph Benavides just because he's been like a a top three, top five uh, contender in every organization that he's uh, fought in. Um, we share a common opponent, Ali Bagutinov, that I finished that he won a decision. We're roughly the uh, same age. Uh, he's fought a couple of my friends. So um, I just feel like that that, that, that fight is just going to be fire. And I mean, anybody that tells you that that fight is, is not going to be, I'll, I'll show you a liar. How, um, how, how soon would you ideally see that happening? I would like to maybe like in December or January-ish time just because uh, – I, I do like the thought of uh, myself getting out of shape just to get back into the shape. It kind of just keeps everything uh, fresh. And I mean, that, that's why I always had to play like uh, um, like three or four sports every year just because I get so bored. It just gets so monotonous when you're doing it every single day in, day out. Has the UFC or any representatives given you an indication as to the possibility of that or, or, or what could be on the horizon? No, not at all. I was just, I was just speaking my mind whenever I was just going on top of their little media tour. But I let them know that's who I want, and and I mean it's gonna be a firefight if they, that that's what that's what they give me. Do you find that some of the demands in terms of maintaining yourself have have gotten more difficult as you've gotten a little bit older, or as you've been in this game uh, for as long as you had? You mentioned about fourteen years. Do, do you find that it's even more? important to try to, to maintain certain elements of your physical health? Yeah, you know, maybe I would say about five-ish years ago, um, one of my main training partners, Ricky Simone, he always ate healthy. And here I am, I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm going to go to Subway. That's super healthy. Uh, but whenever we would be sparring, I mean, he'd had like an endless ga gas tank. Even even though the, he literally had just like a few fights, but I mean the potential was always there. But just um, noticing and just just taking it all in, like you know, I I work out every single day. I you know when I'm getting ready for fights, I'm I'm a little bit healthier. But especially while I'm getting older, I think I need to I need to try and actually just be a the the complete package of 
eating healthy, you know, drinking things that are good for my body, you know, but I don't think, uh, I don't think a, a Corona counts as a sports drink. So <laughs> maybe, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, 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 I took it, I took it to the next level just because I, I did see the potential of, you know, you know, I, I'm beating these, um, these world-class fighters. So maybe I should try and eat like a world-class fighter as well too. And cause we only have so much, so, so much time in this game, man. And I mean, for me, myself, I'm already in my mid thirties, but like I said, you know, if I eat, keep on eating clean, constantly training, man, I, I can hang in with the best of them. Even, even these, uh, mid 20, late 20 year olds. Yeah. Showing them what's up for sure. All right. My last question mm -hmm. is just, uh, what do you recall about, we've had the opportunity to kind of reminisce a little bit with guys like Mike Onzuka, Kaiboy Kamaka about those old icon sport days and just the classic nights at the Blaisdell where there was a packed house and you had this huge lineup of local fighters uh, as well as huge name mainlander international fighters what do you recall about that the, the the infancy of your professional career man it it was electricity up in that place i mean i remember like the the bottom portion and even the top portion was filled like seven eight thousand people just, just just a typical local show there was like seven or eight thousand people there um and uh you know everybody everybody was talking about is on tv it was there, there wasn't any social media back then but somehow whatever they was doing it was working but we was able to pack like seven or eight thousand people you know nowadays uh you're lucky if you get about seven or eight hundred people coming up uh to 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 watch these uh local fights but the amount of electricity that was running through that place, I mean, just it, it, it literally compares to what the what the what the UFC actually feels like for me now is what the Hawaii mixed martial arts was back then. Well, I think it's pretty cool that you've been able to experience both of those, right? The the icon sport days and, and maybe the height of the fight game here in the islands and, and now on the biggest stage uh, in, in the sport, which is uh, the UFC. So uh, we're super happy to see you doing your thing, man. And congratulations on another super impressive performance and uh, looking forward to many, many more from you, Tyson. Awesome. Thanks a lot, boys. All right. Big thanks to Tyson for uh, joining us. It was great to talk with him. And, and we've been doing a lot of that rem reminiscing of, of the old Blaisdell days uh, and the Icon Sports days. So uh, that's always fun, uh, especially for uh, old guys like me. All right, time to get to our post-game best and worst, brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. What is your best for this episode of the podcast, Jordan? Yeah, my best, uh, I'm going to go with Noreen Eosia. Uh, we kind of talked about this uh, filling in on a radio show, but uh, she went, uh, told her story on athletes.realtalk on Instagram, which is focused on mental health and mental health awareness for athletes and the terrific, terrific setter for the University of Hawaii Rainbow Haney volleyball team sharing some of the the uh, difficulty she went through, some of the obstacles she overcame, the support that she got from teammates, from the coaching staff, and just kind of overcoming some of those things. Also, uh, you know, sort of willing to accept that help was such a big part for it for her. So uh, kudos to Noreen, one, for, for being willing to share her story 
to, to hopefully help others. Uh, and, and also the fact that, uh, you know, she, she put in a lot of work to better herself. So terrific to, to Noreen. Yeah, it takes some courage, right? And, and as we know, it's not the easiest thing to do to speak publicly about that stuff, but it can do a lot of good for a lot of people when somebody of that status, right? Someone who has left her mark on Hawaii sports and that Rainbow Wahine volleyball program to openly discuss that and talk about that. I think that will uh, perhaps encourage other people in, in similar positions or dealing with similar problems and issues uh, to be able to talk more openly about that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, kudos to Noreen Yosia for, for just being great in that regard. All right, my best is uh, Bryson DeChambeau winning the U.S. Open. I'm not going to say that I'm a huge fan of DeChambeau or anything, uh, but he's interesting. And thus, I think he's good for the sport of golf. He's something of a golf mad scientist, right? He's like a physics major. Uh, he approaches the game differently from maybe anyone who's played it at that level. Uh, he does seem a little manufactured. Uh, both on and off the course, like he is very cognizant of his public persona and brand. And so I don't really love that part of it because it comes across as less than genuine. Uh, and his his slow play or propensity to play very slowly has created some issues with some of his fellow golfers. Uh, but that's kind of why I think it's good for golf. And that's why it's my best because he's polarizing. Uh, he is a guy who you kind of either love or maybe love to hate. And golf doesn't evoke too much of that kind of emotion. And I think with some other outspoken individuals uh, on the tour, uh, i.e. Brooks Kepka, I think it makes for, for interesting rivalries, perhaps, as we move forward with this thing. So he's interesting. Oh, and he can bomb 375-yard drives. So that's another thing that makes him kind of cool. Man, he hits it a mile. It's just, it's just unbelievable how far he hits it. I, I'm with you. A little heel, a little villain. It adds to it. It adds to it, right? It, it, it's not going to hurt. He could maybe speed up the play a little bit. <laughs> he can play a little faster. There's no doubt. Uh, stop talking to the rules officials all the time. Come on. Hit the, hit the dang ball, Bryson. All right, what's your worst? Yeah, my worst. Uh, Stanley Cup Finals, game two tonight, if anybody's interested. It is <laughs> Dallas and Tampa Bay. The stars and the lightning because nothing screams hockey like Dallas, Texas, and Tampa Bay, Florida. But my worst when all of this, uh, on top of the fact that we've got, you know, a team from the Lone Star State and the Sunshine State playing NHL finals hockey, uh, is the fact that uh, this will be another year, 17th straight year, that Canada, a Canadian team will not hoist the cup. It has been nine years. 2011 was the last team, Vancouver, who made the finals at all, lost in seven games to Boston. But the last team from Canada. Like, hockey is Canada, right? I mean, come on. That's the one thing they got on us. 1993, the Montreal Canadiens. It's been a long time since somebody from Canada's hoisted Lord Stanley's Cup. Uh, all right. My worst is uh, Doug Gottlieb, uh, who I actually worked with uh, covering the Diamond Head Classic a couple of years, but uh, he is now taking to Twitter to question Maria Taylor's credentials after it was revealed that she did not include Anthony Davis on any of her all-NBA team ballots, talking about first, second, or third team. Uh, Gottlieb asked why she even has a vote because she's a sideline reporter and a studio host, basically questioning her credentials. Taylor admitted she made a mistake by not including AD on her first, second, or third team. It's the second time in a week that Taylor was taken to task by some seemingly older maybe bitter, certainly white sports guy, right? You had that radio personality from Chicago that got on her for how she was dressed. Uh, clearly, leaving AD off the ballot was unjustifiable, uh, but it's one thing to criticize the vote itself, and it's another thing to criticize and demean the voter 
who as a sideline reporter and studio host is actually pretty close to the game. Like it's hard to argue against her credentials uh, in that way. Uh, she is she is locking down the studio show for ESPN during the NBA playoffs. So like, I'm not sure how much more credibility uh, is required uh, to vote for all NBA teams, but uh, Gottlieb also just in this instance comes off as a bit of a bully. And, and I think that uh, the optics weren't very good for him there. Yeah. Gottlieb sort of turned into the hot take machine, right? He's, he's sort of carved out that niche for himself where he's just going to say stuff no matter what. Uh, and I don't, I don't like it. Right. I don't know if Ernie Johnson has a vote, but nobody would question whether he deserved one as the studio host for inside the NBA for TNT. Like Maria Taylor is his counterpart on ESPN, like the two networks that have the NBA as their broadcast partners. Uh, they're, they're the studio hosts. Like, of course, of course she should have a vote. She admitted to, right. It's like, you know, I, Bad mistake. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anthony Davis. It was bad. It was, it was yeah. first team. Ended up being first team. But that doesn't mean she doesn't deserve a vote. Yeah, I would still she covers probably, the league. I would still probably trust what she says about those kinds of things more than Charles Barkley. So, like, what are we yeah, talking yeah. about I here? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. And he's a Hall of Famer. That's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. That's it for our show. Thanks once again to Tyson Nam. Jordan and I will be filling in once again. If you want to catch us on the Bobby Curran show, ESPN Honolulu, Thursday and Friday morning, 6 to 9 a.m. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. All right, we'll do it again soon here, Jordan. See ya. <laughs>